We're studying the revelation of Jesus Christ and we are in chapter 20. If you'd like to open your Bible there or navigate on your device. Revelation chapter 20. The topic we'll find there is that the dragon is imprisoned in the abyss for a thousand years and then he's confined to the lake of fire for eternity. The title of our message, Dungeons and Dragon. Father, thank you for bringing us together today. We are excited to study your word, Lord, to understand some things that maybe we didn't quite get before or maybe didn't even know before, and you've chosen to reveal them to us uh, graciously. More than that, Lord, we want to hear from you as the early churches in this book uh, were spoken of. They uh, were to hear what the Spirit said to them collectively and individually. We know that you are a great and mighty God and that you can speak to us between the soul and the spirit in a, in a, a beautiful way that no one else can reach. You know us better than we know ourselves. You know what we need this morning. And that's a, that's a blessing, Lord, that's a wonder. I don't know what I need, not really. And my brothers and sisters may not know what they need exactly either, but you do. And you can provide that need uh, whether it be, well, whatever it is, certainly hope and strength and empowering and all those things, Lord, but uh, just provide for us through your love and grace. We pray in Jesus' name and those who agreed set, amen. A top five of prison break movies would include The Great Escape, Papillon, the original, The Shawshank Redemption, and The Fugitive. The number one prison break movie of all time, Toy Story 3. Can't top it. When the lovable crew are donated to a daycare run by a tyrannical teddy bear, they devise a plan to break out and return home to their beloved Andy. Satan is imprisoned in the abyss for a thousand years. He won't escape. He will be released to lead one final failed campaign to defeat Jesus. The Lord wins easily. We will be part of that end days drama as judges. I'll point us out in the text. I'll organize my comments around two points. Number one, you work as a judge until the thousand years are over. And number two, you watch Jesus judge after the thousand years are over. Let's take a look in verses one through six at us judging. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world do you not know that we shall judge angels? There was a morning centuries ago when the church gathered in Corinth, heard those words for the first time in what we call 1 Corinthians chapter 6. The Apostle Paul there revealed a future role as judges to inform the saints in Corinth that they should stop lawsuits against one another and settle their differences within the church. Do you not know sounds rhetorical. The saints did know that they would in the future serve as judges. They were guilty of thinking more about the here and now and too little about the future. And so Paul was saying, hey guys, quit going to court and suing each other over what are essentially petty difficulties. Uh, even if it means being defrauded or giving up your rights, you're taking glory away from Jesus Christ. You're uh, defiling his name by suing one another. Uh, you should be able to get along in the church. And after all, it's training for what you're going to be doing uh, during the millennium. 
sadly, too many Christians today have found lawsuits uh, uh, viable. I was uh, texting a pastor I know a few months ago, and he said, we were talking about this issue, and he said, well, I think that only applies within your church. So I can't sue you, you can't sue me, but I can sue any other Christian I want to. And I said, that, that can't be right. Anyway, it's, it's a point that Paul was making that I want to make. It's a little bit outside the scope of the study this morning, but I think what we need to learn is that present circumstances don't shape our beliefs and our behaviors. All of us are influenced more than we like to admit. I can see it in your life. Uh, I can see influences based on what you're reading or what you're watching or you know, what you're doing with your life. Your life is kind of molded and shaped and we can see those influences, but we always think that we're above that, that nothing influences me, I'm level-headed and right on. Uh, think about what influences you and make sure that it's the Word of God and that it's the accurate Word of God and not some twisted version of it. We wanna bring glory to the Lord and that means sometimes we'll have to be taken advantage of or wronged God might ask you to give up your rights for the greater good of the gospel. The things that the Bible characters went through, you won't go through them directly, but indirectly the same kinds of things are gonna happen to you and I as God shares his strength and power through our weakness. Now in chapter 19, Jesus returned to earth and immediately defeated the world's combined military might in the Valley of Megiddo in what is called the Battle of Armageddon. First on the kingdom agenda, deal with the devil. Verse one, then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. Bottomless pit is translated from one word in Greek, abyss or abyss. Previously in the revelation, we've seen the abyss as a prison for evil supernaturals. It is the place the beast, also known as the antichrist, is thrown into and comes out of after his assassination. An angel serves as jailer. He carries a key and a chain. These are real, there's a key and a chain, but they also obviously represent the authority and power delegated to him by God. He laid hold, verse two, of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. Four titles describe four of his favorite strategies over the centuries. He was called the dragon in chapter 12, when we saw his efforts to devour the Savior at his birth uh, through the nation of Israel. And really, the, as the dragon, he has a long history of trying to interfere with the Savior's coming into the world. So many of the events of the Old Testament have to do with ending the line of the Messiah. And then we see when Jesus was born, uh, the devil inciting Herod to kill all the infants of a certain age. And now that he's uh, unable to stop the coming of Christ, He's the dragon trying to stop the second coming of Christ by destroying all Israel and killing all Jews so that there's no one for Jesus to come back to triumphantly. And so he's the dragon in that sense. He is the serpent of old. He was the serpent in the Garden of Eden who tempted mankind to disobedience and certainly he still tempts us today. As the devil, he accuses God before men. Have, has God really said this? Does God really love you? Those kinds of things. And as Satan, he is accusing man before God, as he did to righteous Job. Thousand years repeats six times in chapter 20. The Latin word for thousand years is a compound word, milli and annum. We call it the millennium. 
We commonly refer to Jesus' kingdom on earth for 1,000 years as the millennium or the millennial kingdom. Uh, it's a cool name. I mean, you wouldn't want to call it the thousand-year falcon, right? The millennium falcon, get it? Little, little Star Wars joke there. Hey, must be a Star Trek fan club. But anyway, why do we have to fight? Star Wars, Star Trek, it's all the same. Uh, anyway, as long as you like Star Trek better. Every other person and place in chapter 20 are real. So is the duration of the kingdom. If someone wants to suggest it means something else than a thousand years, then it can mean almost anything else. Words have real meaning. Verse three, and he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up, set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. After these things, he must be released for a little while. The devil will ask to go down to Georgia. That's a tribute to Charlie Daniels, who's now home with the Lord, right? You knew Charlie Daniels was uh, deceased and with the Lord. God bless you, Charlie. He is locked away, chained with God's seal on him, and he cannot break out or be broken out. The devil must be released because he has an end game that will be exposed momentarily. And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. The Apostle Paul meant these thrones and judgment when he wrote to the Corinthians. This is what he was foreseeing. You and I are going to judge angels and mankind. Don't worry. You're going to be in your glorified body, incapable of sin, tapped into the pure and peaceable wisdom of God. You've got this. It's not going to be hard. It's going to be glorious and wonderful. What it is we judge about angels, I don't know. Uh, but um, we'll see. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God. They had not worshiped the beast or his image. They had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Beast, image, mark. That's a good three word summation of conditions from mid tribulation to its end. Uh, the Antichrist, the beast, goes into the Holy of Holies, the, the rebuilt Jewish temple. He says, guess what? I'm God, and you're going to worship me. Everybody that's connected in the worldwide system that he has, whether it's digital or a handprint or a face print or whatever it might be, is going to have to, in a sense, pinch incense like they did to Caesar. They're going to have to say, sure, we worship you, no problem. But Christians won't be able to do that. Uh, because they're Christians. And so they will be cut off immediately. Have you ever had your identity stolen? Have you ever had a credit card that they wouldn't accept someplace? How embarrassing. You feel like a criminal. I've had that happen. Me. Sometimes they say, uh, we need to keep your card. Oh, <laughs> no thanks. You know, I mean, and it's like you feel like they're coming for you. Uh, well, in the Great Tribulation, it'll be like that, only they will be coming for you. You won't be able to buy or sell anything. You won't be able to go anywhere. And they'll know exactly where you are. And as we saw in one of our updates not too long ago, they'll probably launch a drone with facial recognition and blow your head off. So beast image mark. That's what we're looking for. If somebody asks, what's the tribulation going to be like? You've got it. Tribulation martyrs fit this description. Although beheaded and dead, they will live. Live means resurrected from the dead to reign with the Lord for the thousand years. 
Verse five, but the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. People in both the Old and New Testaments were raised from the dead, but not resurrected. Resurrection means you're never going to die again. They were raised in their earthly body, but they did have to die again. Resurrection is the transformation of the body into its final spiritual state. You can read a lot about it in 1 Corinthians 15. The Bible describes a first resurrection and a second resurrection. The first resurrection is the resurrection of all those from the world's creation until its remaking after the millennium who believe God and are justified by grace through faith. It is the resurrection of all saved people. The second resurrection is the resurrection of all those throughout history who did not believe God for salvation. We'll see the second resurrection called the second death in this chapter. It is essentially the resurrection of all non-believers, all the unsaved. Here's something that will make sense of all of the information I'm gonna give you. The first resurrection does not happen all at once. It is spread out over time. It doesn't happen all at once. The physical bodily resurrection of Jesus is fundamental to our faith. Don Stewart writes, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the central truth of the Christian faith. Without it, there is no such thing as the Christian faith. Jesus Christ's resurrection marks the beginning of the first resurrection. He was the first person to rise from the dead in a glorified body, never to die again. He was first among many others. 1 Corinthians 15, 20 says he is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. That means Jesus rose from the dead and many others will. Uh, he was like a kind of first fruit and we'll see some others in a minute. We have uh, planted a couple of small pomegranate trees and they're growing pretty nice. And one of them has one pomegranate. <laughs> and when I saw it, I said, honey, we have a pomegranate. Maybe 10 years from now, we'll have two pomegranates. I don't know, but it's the first fruits of that. It's, it's, it's that there will never be another glorious first pomegranate. I've got it all propped up and, you know, I've got a trail cam on it to make sure. No, I'm just kidding, but, well, partly. A few saints were resurrected along with the Lord. This isn't normally remembered, but it's right there in Matthew 27. Graves were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. Coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. So Jesus rose from the dead. After he was raised from the dead, there was a handful of resurrections in Jerusalem. And they went and announced themselves to different people. Now, some people say, no, they weren't really raised from the dead. They are resurrected. They were just raised from the dead and they died again. What kind of, how would that be? Jesus resurrected, and guess what? A few more people were raised from the dead to die again. That, that's not exciting. They were raised to never die again as a first fruits offering. Next in order in the first resurrection are the saints of the church age. First Thessalonians chapter four informs us that Jesus is coming in the clouds for his church and the dead in Christ shall rise first. People who are dead in Christ are those uh, from the first century church until this coming of Jesus. They are the dead in Christ, the dead of the church age. There will be living believers when Jesus raises the dead in Christ. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them 
Deceased believers will be resurrected and then living believers will be raptured in resurrection bodies. Next in order in the first resurrection are the two witnesses we met in chapter 11 of the Revelation. Now after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them and they stood on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. Here in Revelation 20, we're told that the martyrs of the great tribulation will be resurrected at Jesus' second coming so that they can rule and reign with him throughout the millennium. Not mentioned here or anywhere, uh, but elsewhere rather, we learn that the Old Testament believers also are resurrected at the second coming. There's one more group of believers we need to account for, and they are the millennials. Not the millennials as we know them today, but the true millennium, uh, millennials who survive the millennium. Believers who survive the great tribulation and will be the only humans allowed to enter the thousand-year kingdom on the earth. It will start with all believers. Children will be born to the believers and earth will be repopulated. These will choose to receive or reject Jesus. There will be multitudes of believers at the end of those thousand years. The Apostle Paul has made it clear in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that eternity is inhabitable only by those with resurrected glorified bodies that are no longer mortal. We can safely presume that God will transform millennials for eternity. We're not told when or how, but he will. So then in verse 6, blessed and holy is he who has part in this first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Believers are blessed and make, uh, made holy. You may not feel blessed times in your life. I know I don't always feel blessed. I have to be reminded that God is working for my good, working to produce holiness in my life, which is a separation from the world to become more like him. Many of you are suffering right now in so many ways, uh, you know, psychologically, emotionally, mentally, physically, uh, heartache, pain, suffering, you know, so is the rest of the world. It's a fallen world. But we are blessed in the sense that we have a relationship with the Lord. To live is Christ. We get to live for Jesus Christ, serve him no matter our physical condition. And he empowers us with the gospel so that uh, we can share it with others and they can have eternal life. They can have their sins forgiven and know that they're saved for eternity. And, and you know, to live is Christ. To die is gain. If you were to die, uh, it's a gain. We sorrow not as those who don't have hope. And so when somebody dies, or you know, it's a terrible thing. It's a sorrowful thing. But death has been defeated by Jesus Christ. And we're, we really are going to see that person again. It's not a baseless hope. It's based on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And, and so I understand that, you know, <laughs> say somebody, oh, you're blessed and, and holy. Uh, you may not feel that way, but you are. The second death sounds like the title of a horror movie series, right? Second death one, it begins. Second death two, it continues. But I mean, but really it's much worse than a horror movie and we'll see that in a moment. God's desire for his people in both testaments was that they be a kingdom of priests. I'm sure kinging and priesting will involve a lot, but it boils down to sharing Jesus with humans born in the millennium. I skipped a phrase in verse 3, the devil deceives the nations of the world. What an incredible insight. 
We could spend years discovering his strategies with former and current empires. The devil is deceiving nations right now. Are you looking at the world and trying to figure out what is going on? How people who are otherwise you know, rational and reasonable are given over to totally irrational, unreasonable things? Uh, just the, the, the general craziness of the world? It's because Satan is deceiving nations of the world, not just individuals, but nations. And uh, I, you know, people say, uh, it, you know, this COVID, right? Again, not a conspiracy theory, but people say, oh, is, is it a prophetic thing? Is it part of, you know, God's plan? Uh, it, it, did the nations of the world get together and plan it? Nobody's smart enough to come up with something like this. This is the devil in deep consultation, probably with him, himself and his minions saying, hey, how about this? China's our ally, how about we have them release a toxin and let's see what happens, let's see where this goes. And the whole world is upside down now in a terrible way. Some people will never recover from this and I'm not talking about the physical part of it. Sure, a lot of people are dying from COVID and more will and that's tragic, but a lot more people are gonna die over time if the Lord tarries because of the effects of how we're dealing with it, right? And so, the devil deceives nations. And so when you look out there and you think, wow, this doesn't make any sense, the only thing that makes sense is that it doesn't make sense. It makes sense to me, it doesn't make sense because the devil is involved. And he's not about making sense, he's about lying and murdering and destroying. And that's our world right now. And we are the only ones with the answer. In Proverbs, we read, righteousness exalts a nation. Righteousness ultimately depends on the gospel being proclaimed and received and more people being declared righteous by God. There's a lot we can do as citizens and should, but there's nothing more significant we can do than to share Christ. We're gonna watch Jesus judge after the thousand years are over in verses seven through 15. Dystopia is defeating utopia, hands down. We are fascinated with dystopian visions of the future whether it's zombies or aliens or pandemics or environmental disasters, we have surrendered to the idea that the end is near and that it will be dystopian. Jesus is coming with utopia. You know, people, they say, oh, it's the end of the world. Good, because Jesus is bringing the only true utopia, the kingdom of God on earth. The risen Lord Jesus Christ, King of kings and Lord of lords, the Lord God omnipotent will be physically on earth ruling from Jerusalem. Non-believers born in that era will see us in our glorified bodies and they will understand that that is the destiny of, uh, that the Lord has for them as well should they choose him. Conditions on the earth will be altogether perfect. What could go wrong? Well, verse seven, now when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. Satan is released on his own recognizance with no ankle monitor. He immediately foments rebellion. I've been waiting all revelation to say foment. Do you ever use the word foment in real life? I never do, but it's a great word. I don't know what it means exactly, but it fits in the context there. The identity of Gog and Magog is debated by scholars. 
The uncertainty derives from them being named 700 years prior in the prophecy of Ezekiel 38 and 39. There are some similarities to the two prophecies, such as each passage mentions they are part of a coalition of nations that attack God's people. If you get out a yellow pad and write down the details of each of those passages, however, you'll pretty quickly determine they describe two different rebellions. One glaring difference, the uprising in Ezekiel occurs before the millennium, probably during the Great Tribulation, and the one in the Revelation is after the millennium. Two separate events. And they went up on the breath of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. There is a lamentable emphasis on the sheer number of people who will openly reject Jesus to his face. Jesus will be there in glory. You and I will be there in glorious resurrection bodies, and people will still reject salvation in Jesus Christ. The devil is involved, but we can't really let anybody say the devil made me do it. Eve used different words in the Garden of Eden when God was questioning her, but essentially she said, the devil made me do it. The devil don't make you do it. We have free will. Non-believers gather in staggering numbers. Jesus and us sit this one out. God the Father sends fire to devour this horde of barbarians. Verse 10. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. The devil, uh, the devil, the devil never rules in hell. He is not its jailer. He torments no one. Those are all notions from secular literature and, and media. Uh, that's not what's going to be happening. He is tormented day and night for eternity in the lake of fire. Notice that the beast and the false prophet are still there, alive after the thousand years. Eternal conscious torment is literal. I'd be the first in line to, to, to wish that there was no eternal conscious torment for non-believers, that the lake of fire was a symbol, that people were annihilated, but that's not true. And if anybody wonders, a good proof text is right here. A thousand years earlier, the beast and the false prophet are thrown into the lake of fire. A thousand years later, they're still there. Verse 11, then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and heaven fled away. There was found no place for them. The phrase, the earth and the heaven fled away, might be telling us that this judgment takes place after the current earth and heavens are burned up and restored. Peter wrote and he said, the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. There is a terrifying piece of business to attend to before eternity begins. Non-believers from creation to the end of the millennium are crowding Hades awaiting their resurrection. This is that second resurrection. Unlike the first resurrection, the second resurrection occurs all at once, and it is also called the second death. Verse 12, I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. Books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. Robert Thomas writes, the Bible makes consistent reference to a register of human actions. The greater focus of this passage, however, is on another book, the book of life. 
John Walvert explains, saying, the book of life originally contained the names of all for whom Christ died, that is, the whole world. But at the judgment of the great white throne, many blank spaces will signal the removal of many names who never believed in Christ for salvation. Verse 13, the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one according to his works. When you think about the earth, it's either sea or land. And so sea and death refer to the physical location of the remains of deceased believers. Hades is the location for their souls. God keeps a careful record of the works non-believers perform. In the end, if you don't have Christ, he's going to review your works and they will prove insufficient to gain access to heaven. No amount of good work can atone for sin. The work of God is to believe in his son. We used to use as an example, uh, long distance swim. And we would say, let's go to Newport Beach because that's a cool beach and jump in and start swimming to Hawaii. I, I don't think I could get past the waves anymore. Uh, you know, that's about as far as I would get before I would conk out. Uh, there's a record, I think, uh, if it's the most current record, the longest long distance swim, a lady did it in 41 hours, 77 miles. Wow. How far is that to be swimming in the ocean? So she could get a lot farther than I could. And so what we say is, so, so let's say I'm Charlie Manson, you know, one of the worst sinners that you can think of. And this person is, you know, Mother Teresa, somebody who appears super godly with works and all of that. Neither one of us is going to get to Hawaii. We're going to drown. We're going to fall short of Hawaii. How much farther we fall short of heaven by our own good works. The best that we could ever do, the farthest we could ever swim is far, far from heaven. Thank goodness that the Lord has given us Jesus Christ as our Savior. Death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. A result of all non-believers being cast into the lake of fire is that there will never again be death or a need for Hades. That's the sense in which they too can be said to be cast into the lake of fire. God is done with them. They were temporary, uh, needful for a time, but now he's done with them. Non-believers die twice. They die physically and then they die spiritually, which means they live for eternity separated from God in conscious torment. That is the second death and it never ends. With that, the curtain closes on the drama of redemption that plays out on earth for several millennia. Eternity in the new heavens and on the new earth begins to never end. We will see the curtain rise on eternity as the book closes in its final chapters.